Hey, Rachel. Hmm. Did you know that listeners who appreciate first reading can help us keep it going by making donations online? No way. Yes, it is absolutely true. On our website, firstreadingpodcast.com, there's a big donate button that will let you make a one-time donation via PayPal or any major credit card. What? That's amazing. Now, if only there was a way to set up recurring monthly donations. You're in luck, Rachel, because the very same donate button at firstreadingpodcast.com gives you the option of making your donation a one-time contribution or a recurring monthly gift. No. Ah, I'm feeling grateful already. Is there any way we can thank those who choose to press that special little button? Well, now that you mention it, we would be happy to ship off a complimentary first reading coffee mug with some biblical humor in Hebrew on the reverse side to all of our supporters who set up a recurring donation of $5 or more. Ah, who could pass that deal up? I know, right? <laughs> so I, I did know that already, but it was kind of fun. <laughs> um, anyway, should we do this week's episode? Yeah, let's get to it. Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast that helps you get a handle on the Hebrew Bible and might even spark an amazing sermon idea. I'm Tim McNinch, a PhD candidate at Emory and an ordination candidate in the PCUSA. And I'm Rachel Wren, ordained Lutheran minister and assistant professor of biblical studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary. Our third half, Rosie Candethel, is off this week. So the first reading for April 3rd is Isaiah 43, but I gather you're not covering that text this time around, Tim? Yeah, that's right. Last time this passage came up in the lectionary a few years ago, we had a great interview with the amazing biblical scholar, Dr. Vanessa Lovelace, who mm. helped us to take a deep dive into that rich prophetic text through a womanist lens. So I'd encourage our listeners to type Isaiah 43 or Vanessa Lovelace into the handy dandy search box on our website and listen to that classic episode. It was it was really one of our early greats. Yeah, it was. And it was so fun, too, because all three of us were in Atlanta. So we mm -hmm. actually got to record in person. What a concept. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great one. Okay, so, so what are you doing this week then, Tim? Are you going to cover the psalm or what's up? Yeah, exactly. I'm going to do the psalm. The nice. psalm reading for this week is Psalm 126, verses 1 to 6, which is the whole of this short poem. And I always love it when we get to cover a complete biblical unit. Absolutely. This psalm pairs nicely with that Isaiah 43 passage because both are themed around the return from exile, and mm -hmm. they employ evocative imagery of rivers in the desert. Oh, they're so good. Yeah, I'm I'm just a sucker for a good psalm. We should read it. Don't you think we it's so short. We could read the whole yeah, thing, don't you think? Yeah, you want to you want to do that? Yes. Okay. So, this is the NRSV version. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we rejoiced. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourses in the Negev. May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. Ah, oh, such a good one. 
Mm-hmm. So, so we're looking, we're looking at like Babylonian exile here, right? Or post-exilic when the Lord restored the, for, or no, not post-exilic. It would be exile when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Uh, well, actually, it's a little confusing there. There's mm-hmm. some disagreement among interpreters about whether this first stanza, verses one through three, should actually be read as past tense or maybe future tense. Mm, yeah, no, that's really good. That's that's where it gets so tricky in Hebrew because the difference between the imperfect and the perfect as past and future is already ambiguous when you're in prose and then you throw it into poetry and it's just anybody's game, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Sometimes the Hebrew in these kinds of poetic texts can be a bit more complex than the stuff that we teach in intro Mm -hmm. Hebrew. Here, it's perhaps just as likely that that first line in the poem could mean when the Lord restores the fortunes of Zion, Mm -hmm. we will be like those who dream. Our mouths will be filled with laughter, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. And in fact, the NJPS translation renders it exactly that way, as a future-looking song. Hmm. And really, there's something to be said for that. The second stanza, verses 4 through 6, seems to really clearly be about the future. It's like a call for God to make the dream of the first half of the poem a reality in their actual Hmm. experience. Hmm. Interesting. So are they drawing on the past to make their petition, or are they leaning into the future to make their petition to God? So that that's a pretty big difference in how you read this psalm, right? So what what do you think? Do you have a leaning? Uh, well, well, I think one of the regular features of poetry is a kind of surplus of meaning, mm, right? That's nice. So in other words, I, I think there are probably helpful insights to gain from reading it either way or both mm. ways. Mm-hmm. If that first half is like a dreamlike memory of God's past deliverance, then it serves as a motivation for the psalmist to call out to God to make a kind of repeat performance <laughs> of rescue in a new time of challenge or a new crisis. Mm-hmm. I, so are you thinking of other places in the Bible that like this, this kind of pattern comes up? Well, it, it may be a kind of pattern, uh, or it might not. I mean, it, it makes me think perhaps of Habakkuk 3. Mm-hmm. Um, God, I've heard about your fame. I'm awed by your works for the past. And then Habakkuk says, renew them now in yeah. our day and in our time. Mm-hmm. I think that's definitely the flavor of what's happening in this psalm. Mm. Uh, but then on the other hand, if we <laughs> read that first stanza as forward-looking, Uh, from the perspective of a community that's still in exile, then it's a powerful expression of hope. It's it's like envisioning a different kind of reality, Mm. Uh, kind of like MLK's I Have a Dream speech, right? The psalmist is saying something like, I have a dream that one day God will deliver us, and one day the nations will say the Lord has done great things for them. Mm -hmm. And, And it flows really nicely into that prayer for the dream to then become a reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me think a little bit of like Isaiah, third Isaiah, with all of that that hope for the future and just this very different future. So, okay, how, how do you think, you know, is this just kind of like a fun Hebrew tidbit, or do you think there's some <laughs> preachingness with this ambiguity in the Hebrew? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, if if you want to be really pragmatic about it, preachers, you might want to just run with however the translation that you normally use in church translates this poem. So if it's past tense, kind of think of it in past tense, or if it's future tense, treat it as future tense. Fair enough. But this could also be a potential preaching angle if you decide to make note uh, of the fact that the first stanza could be backward or forward-facing. 
then you you could actually apply it meaningfully to different experiences of different people in your congregation. Ah, uh, yeah. Those who've who've experienced the recent past as a time of God's presence and help can then call on God to do it again. Mm. While those who are really like in the thick of it right now can look forward with hope to the possibility of a different kind of future. Oh, I love that. It's almost like you could preach one sermon and then start over again and preach a sermon on the same text, but from two different angles. I mean, that could be a really fun way to draw your people in. Oh, yeah. It's like, you mm-hmm. know, just do both of them. Well, and I like that too, because that's so faithful to the poem itself. I think sometimes we kind of flatten out the scriptures so that they can mean only one thing or speak to only one situation. So it's really powerful when you have a reading like this that has these different angles kind of baked into the grammar itself. That's really neat. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Anything else that stood out to you? Well, um, yeah, maybe one more tidbit. Uh, the the Hebrew term rina pops up three times in this short poem in verses 2, 5, and 6. That term, rina, means something like a, an outburst or a shout. Mm-hmm. Um, the NRSV translates it a shout of joy. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is how this term is put in parallel with other sorts of vocal outbursts. Mm-hmm. In verse 2, it's paralleled with laughter. Uh, but in verse 5 and 6, it's in a contrast with uh, what we call antithetical parallel with weeping. Which is kind of interesting because the word itself, rina, is kind of am- ambiguous. It could mm. be a, a joyful shout or some other cry. Mm. And in 5 and 6, it's in parallel with weeping. In fact, the, the structure of verse 6 in Hebrew is quite striking and exact. It's basically, um, if you were to translate it very rigidly, it's almost going, weeping, carrying seed... Coming, rejoicing, that's the word rina, carrying harvest. Mm. It lines up like exactly. Mm, Wow. And and as with any powerful contrast like that, part of what makes the contrast potent is the similarity between the things that are being contrasted. Okay, that's cool. Break it down even more because I feel like I see where you're going, but can you be really specific? Like what's what is the potent similarity between the things contrasted? Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, um, what I'm getting at here, the word um, bajo in this text, weeping, is an almost involuntary outburst of sorrow. Mm-hmm. While rina in this context, uh, as rejoicing, is an almost involuntary outburst of joy. Mm-hmm. Both of these Outbursts are emotionally heightened, both often involve tears. Mm. And if you don't know the context of the outcry, their sound can actually be difficult to distinguish. Oh, nice. Yeah. So their very similarity experientially binds them together, even though they're they're kind of opposites conceptually. Mm. So in its poetic way, this psalm is conveying that rejoicing is often tied to the past experience of great sorrow. Mm. And newfound joy doesn't just erase that past pain. Instead, joy is sort of superimposed on the pain so that together it's a thick, substantive experience. Boy, that preaches into our experience of the last two years, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes. In fact, I'm kind of driving towards a preaching angle along those lines. Yeah. 
I think a, a song like this can speak very meaningfully into um, the possibility of a post-pandemic world. Yeah. And, and I, I have to say I'm approaching this idea with caution because it's not entirely clear yeah. that we are right. in a post-pandemic moment. Right. But as vaccination rates increase and the masks start to come off and some of our more social experiences resume, as churches begin to worship in person again in some places, outbursts of joy would not be unexpected. Mm. Still, just as this poem bears witness, those expressions of joy carry with them the pain of the last mm. couple of years and the irrecoverable loss of those who are no longer with us and the ongoing suffering of many from the disease or from war yeah. or from any of the other features of real life that make life so complex. Yeah. That, that image, um, just to pull from another spot in the poem, in verse 4, that image of spring floods in the Negev desert, really captures the tangled and almost cyclical experience of pain mm. and joy that are a part of actual life. Mm. So I think this song counsels us to not only face our suffering with honesty, but also to cling to hope as a realistic expectation and not just a sort of pie-in-the-sky thing. Mm. Joy can actually be just as real as the sorrow. Mm. Wow, Tim, that sounded like a psalm <laughs> scholar to me. That was awesome. Hey, I've got a little poetry in my back. I bet you do. You need to let your inner poet sing out a little more, Tim. That was great. Well, friends, that'll wrap us up for this week. If you haven't been to the website in a while, it's worth popping over to firstreadingpodcast.com. Pick out a back episode you might want to listen to later or learn more about our hosts and guests. Thank you to our supporters, including Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. And hey, maybe to you too, if you clicked on that special little button. We love to interact with our listeners, so drop us a note on the Facebook or send an email to firstreadingpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Have a great week.